Welcome to the 213th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Matthew McGevna, author of the debut novel, Little Beast. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Matthew McGevna. McGevna's debut novel, Little Beast, was recently published. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're, up, you're in Massachusetts, no? I am. I am. Oh, yeah. I have cousins up in Massachusetts. Yes. They're in, um, uh, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the town now, down in like the south of Boston. Yeah. Um, yeah where I'm, the Wahlbergs are from. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. west of Boston. Well, well, right, can, well can, I, can I have you read the first two or three pages from your new novel, Little Beast? Absolutely. Yeah. This is, uh, yeah, just the opening, um, just right from the opening in chapter one, uh, Little Beast. This is the town of Turnbull. In the month of July, in the sweltering town, the heat reminds its people of their limits. There are the day's demands and not much else. The smell of salt from the ocean to the south is faint in the hot air. The people wipe their brows, try to sit still when they can. Damp rags draped over the back of necks. The penny saver, usually left rotting off the edge of the mailbox until replaced by the next one, is taken out of its plastic sleeve. Its glossy pages make for handheld fans. Though hardly a square foot of painted stiff, not spotted with rust, the men go out to wash their cars anyway and spray their children with hoses as they run by screeching. They silently lament their move from the city, where hydrants were made to be opened. In Turnbull, block parties are never spontaneous. They never evolve from a stream of water pouring from the spigot. Turnbull, a stretch of land on the south shore of Long Island, adjusts out into the Great South Bay like a sore thumb as one road in, one road out. Turnbull Road runs north and south, an artery of potholes. On the shoulder, the workers huddle near the west side of the yellow truck to grab what little shade they can. Water from the lunch boxes is poured through their scalps rather than their lips as they watch the steam rise from the mound of blacktop and tacitly curse their lot. White tank tops greased with tar line up like dirty daisies, old daisies along the runner of the truck. The road moves north and south while a narrow creek cuts the thumb in half by running east and west. And when the heavy rains come, the puddle where the Turnbull Road dips into a small valley is knee-deep. The barefoot children gather their towels and frolic in their temporary swimming holes. But the roadway has been dry all month. See how the blacktop shimmers near the fender of the sheriff's car as it cruises along on cool tires? just pulled out from the gas station when the sheriff paid an extra three quarters to have them topped off with air. In the front seat is the street map of Turnbull, and the page is open to where his red ink has drawn a circle around Meadowgate Road. Set your eyes on Meadowgate Road and how it rises up from the other side of the creek just after Turnbull Road dips down into the small valley. The sheriff almost always notices the sink in the road and sighs with relief that on this day, for this whole month even, he hasn't had to chase the children away as they splash and twist out of reach, cursing at him in the rain. Instead, he makes his right turn onto Meadowgate Road and narrows his eyes when he sees the movers, three of them, sitting in front of the house, fat as frogs. I'll stop there if you like. Okay, great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Little Beast yet, how would you describe your your debut novel? Uh, well, it's it's essentially it's a novel about poverty. Um, it, uh, it's a novel about a, a working class town that has um, found uh, all the different ways to try to cope with uh, their station in life and the difficulties that they face. Uh, that those those people who who do exist all over America who are sort of one bad thing away from happening 
that just completely sinks them financially, possibly even puts them in a position to be evicted from their home. That passage that I read is uh, just the beginning of what is going to be a sheriff's eviction. Uh, the movers are going to pull everybody's belongings uh, out of the home and put it out on the curb. And I wanted to really, it, it's really based on, on my upbringing in a town that I grew up in, Long, Long Island, which is, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Long Island uh, does have uh, impoverished communities. And one of them is the town I grew up in, Nancy Beach. And it's a beautiful community. It's, it's a beachside community, but but uh, it also has uh, historically just had some problems uh, financially. And then, of course, issues with crime, um, uh, addiction, things of that nature. And so Little Beast really kind of captures uh, the essence of that neighborhood, um, and uh, and they're trying to uh, them trying to cope with uh, what eventually uh, happens, which is the murder of a young boy uh, by an older teenager. Uh, loosely based on a crime that really took place uh, on Long Island, uh, but but in a in a little bit of a wealthier town, uh, sort of the northwest of where I grew up. But I grew up hearing that story, um, and so that murder that takes place is really the central. Uh, moments of the novel, but the novel, you know, on a larger scale, sort of captures poverty um, and and how poverty can sort of deteriorate and enable it, and how people sort of deal with it. Sure. Well, you mentioned that that uh, real life murder that's kind of the backdrop of Little Beast, and that was the murder of um, a kid, John Pius. Um, I'm yeah. curious, what what was the process for you when you started working on the novel? Was there a specific point in time where you where you kind of made the decision to use that real life crime um, and your personal experience of hearing about that crime growing up as an inspiration for Little Beast? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, I, it, I started writing this novel uh, when uh, shortly after the death of my father. I, it just sort of poured out of me. I think I was, um, I was trying to sort of come to grips with um with my own understanding of my relationship with my father, which was not a, which was, which was a difficult one. Um, uh, and, uh, and just sort of started to sit down at the, at the typewriter and started out just by retracing some of my earliest impressions and my earliest memories. Uh, I had some advantages and I had some, some things that, that, um, uh, it was, it was not all entirely bad. We grew up very poor. I was on free and reduced lunch program, as many of my classmates were. Um, my father was an alcoholic, so he was always out of work. We were relying on my mother's salary as a school bus driver, which was not much. Um, so we were, there was never any money in the house. But uh, fortunately, just back in the early 70s, when they first purchased their home, my parents, uh, they purchased it up against the creek um, uh, with a fair amount of woods in the backyard. Um, so my earliest impressions as a childhood when I started thinking about it was building forts and playing in the street. Um, and then I just started to dive a little bit deeper, just pulling out images of things that I remember, you know, at my youngest age, some of the, some of the encounters that I had with my father, some of the way, some of the memories I had of my father. And then this crime sort of jumped into my head as I was thinking about it. And, you know, I do remember, like, I would, I used to walk to the deli. uh, around the corner from my house, uh, but I would always stop when I would see a group of teenagers. Um, and I had a road and I would try to find some other way around. I would take a side street or go through the woods or whatnot because I was really, um, in, you know, impressed with this memory that my mother had told me this crime my mother had told me about. Um, in fact, as a young boy, I always imagined that the crime took place in my hometown. I didn't realize until years later when I was researching that, that it took place in the town called Smithtown. Um, but, but sort of really impressed. Well, many of my, many of my, uh, classmates or, or, uh, neighborhood friends were also aware of this crime that took place. Uh, had a really profound impression on me. 
they uh, essentially what happened was these older teenagers uh, ganged up on a 13-year-old boy, John Pius, and uh, murdered him ultimately by stuffing rocks down his throat. They were afraid he was going to turn them into the police for having stolen a bike frame. At least that's the, the common, uh, uh, that's what the courts bore out and what the, the news reports were about it. Um, that this crime took place. Uh, that was that was the motivation for it. Uh, but in either event, I was sort of horrified by the idea that you could sort of get ganged on. And 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 growing up in my town, it was very it wasn't entirely uncommon to sort of get surrounded by teenagers who would find sorts of mean ways in order to sort of rid you and and you know uh, you know push you around. Uh, one of the one of the things that I had in my creek growing up was a swing that used to go across the river. And I remember one time. A group of teenagers came down the creek, came from further down river, and they came up to the woods, and they saw us playing on the swing. My friend Danny uh, happened to be on it at the time, and they took him, uh, they made him stay on the swing, and they started spinning the swing around, spinning around, spinning it around, until he almost puked. Um, and they just got the biggest, you know, uh, thrill out of doing this. Um, so it wasn't entirely beyond uh, possibility that something like that could have happened in my town. Um, and so I grew up sort of very, very um, uh, skittish and, and hesitant to engage teenagers. Um, that was a very, very large impression on me, and I thought this would be a great anchor and a way into writing about poverty and the ways in which kids who don't have a lot of opportunities, kids who don't have a lot of places to go or things to do, will find ways uh, to um, uh, to find ways to entertain themselves, and those ways are not always the most constructive. You understand? Mm-hmm. Oh, the idle hands of the devil's work? Is that how it's going? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, so so yeah. I wonder, given the notoriety of the John Pius murder and, and the trial that you mentioned, have you gotten any specific feedback yet about your novel, Little Beast, from people who grew up on Long Island and, and remember that crime? Yeah, well, every time I read from this, this novel, and I and I don't actually even mention John Pius's name during my readings. I just say it was a young boy who was, who was murdered by old teenagers the method in which he was murdered was very unique. And it's by having rocks stuffed down his throat. And the moment I mention that methodology, uh, I want to say more than half of the people in the audience sort of shake their heads and, you know, gasp and remember and, and talk to one another. You know, they get these little whispering during the reading. They say, you know, I remember that. I remember where I was. I remember where they were, you know, when they first heard about it. Um, some of them were much more uh, engrossed in the crime than others. But just about everybody on the island who who lived here or grew up around here, even in the early 80s when the trial took place, uh, can, can, can cast their mind back to that crime. It was a pretty notorious one uh, as crimes go on Long Island. I, I would say maybe the, the Balafito, uh attempted murder from Amy, by Amy Fisher was maybe another notorious one. Um, the Amityville massacre. There, there are a handful of crimes that took place in Long Island, and that was one of them. Um, so I definitely get feedback from people who, who remember the crime, remember where they were when they first learned of it, remember how horrified they were because it's supposed to be this sort of suburban enclave, this, this, this safe place where you can bring your kids up. Um, you know, he was, he was murdered on the grounds of an elementary school. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the feedback in that regard. And, and you know, sometimes there's, there's a little bit, I would say, even some negative pushback, um, not not directly to me, like at a reading, but but on social media, um, there are some people who felt that I shouldn't have written the novel uh, because it sort of relives this horrific crime that, that they think is better off less, better off less than the past. Uh, the parents, uh, the boy who was murdered, uh, moved to Florida. You know, I think only a year or so after the murder took place, understandably, and mm-hmm. I can't imagine their grief. But 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 my my argument is that is then why write historical fiction at all? What why write you know what what would your response be about writing fiction about the Holocaust? 
or writing fiction about the Civil War, or writing fiction about, um, you know, any crime that really takes place. I think we learn um, when we rediscover some of these crimes and, and we reimagine them uh, at some level. But uh, overall, the response has been pretty positive. But yeah, I, everybody remembers it um, and and uh, has has some sort of story to tell about it um, in their relation to it. Gotcha. So, so what has been your what's been your writing path that led you to writing Little Beast? Uh, and and did you study creative writing? I did. I studied. Um, I studied at Southampton College. Uh, it's a really uh, just a, you know you know journey it's, I've been on. Uh, this this novel is really over ten years in the making. Mm-hmm. But I did. I studied. I got my MFA at Southampton College, uh, which is now Stony Brook Southampton Writing Program. Um, I got it back in 2002. One of my professors there was a woman named Kaylee Jones. I had her even as an undergraduate because I did my undergraduate at Southampton as well. Uh, Kaylee um, and I managed to keep in touch. We lost touch for a little bit after I had I had finished my MFA program. I was really floundering. I wasn't writing. Uh, I was working at a news station here on Long Island. I was working at a broadcast news station and and just really out of any sort of literary circle and was dying really, uh, out, out here in the wild. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I, I got a hold of her. I don't, I think I was, I was in the city and, uh, I had known she had an address and I just popped in and, and her, her little daughter was outside. She had, and was telling me all about Harry Potter and then that was good. The book had just come out. And so I reconnected with her. I left a message with Kaylee and said, you know, please be in touch with me. And she got back in touch with me and I ended up, entering her little private writing workshop program that she ran out of her apartment. Um, and uh, she she invited me back in. And so when I went back in there, I had what was really the early draft of Little Beast, which was initially a 500-page novel. As I said, it just sort of poured out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it covered, it covered the span of 10 years. The crime takes place, and then the second half of the novel, which you don't see in Little Beast, was, was 10 years later. The, the victim, the two surviving victims of this, of this attack, um, are now 18 years old and getting ready to graduate high school. I, I had, so it really encompassed everything. Kitchen sink, everything that went on in my life. And, uh, it went through a lot of revisions for Kaylee. Kaylee, but she really believed in the project and really fell in love with it. Um, and, uh, I had one agent on the hook who ultimately passed. Then I finally got another agent. The novel in it had, and the length that it was at, I shopped it to Johnny Temple at Akashic Books, um, in Brooklyn. He liked it, but ultimately passed on it to be comfortable length was just, was just, you know, it, it just went on. Uh, it was just too, too large of a novel and had lost some of the tension. So, um, so I got very frustrated. I put the book away for another year. Um, and then finally reconnected with Kaylee again and Kaylee said, let's work on editing. Let's keep paring it down. Uh, let's keep tweaking it, cutting things down. And then finally, uh, she said, well, let's, what if we just treat the first half of what happens, the crime and immediately the immediate aftermath? And I, and once I was able to sort of emotionally wrap myself around the idea of letting go of 200 plus pages of writing, um, it really turned out to be a better book. Uh, and, and the whole process, um, from, from its inception all the way to now, it took all of about 10 years, but I finally got an agent, agent passed it around to some major houses, and ultimately Kaylee Jones contacted me. Again, and said, uh, I've got an inference, uh, with, with, through Akashic Books, who I, who I had initially shot the novel to. Uh, she said, they, they just greenlighted my inference, and I really want your novel to be one of the first, uh, one, you know, one of the first novels I put out of the inference. Um, so all of a sudden, there I was back to square one. 
so my MFA program, honestly, and my MFA experience is directly tied to having my debut out today uh, because because it was done, you know, I was really championed by, by Kaylee. That's great. Well, yeah. well what, what writing advice would you offer for listeners who may be working on their own novels or short stories? Uh, well, I think it depends upon this the process, but I would say, um, I would say avoid, you know, avoid being preachy. Um, you know, it, it, the problem is my process when I write books is that a lot of times I try to, I try to capture a basic idea. Uh, I start out with an idea. Um, like right now I'm, I'm sort of engrossed in class distinctions in America. You know, I want to tell the story of my hometown. Uh, the story of working class, disenfranchised people. So sometimes I'll ask myself, like, how do I dramatize or illustrate the feeling that many poor people have that they need to, for example, ask permission to enter a room? You know, uh, sometimes uh, I, I feeling like uh, I, feeling like you're entitled to certain dignities is, I think, a luxury sometimes in working class towns or in towns where I grew up. I mean, I'm pretty sure it, it was the case in, uh, with, with the town that I grew up in. For example, I wrote a story called Beautiful Swimmer where a kid and his father, they go crabbing. And, uh, and it was really based on, on my own experience crabbing in the river down the street from me. Um, a poor kid and his father go crabbing in the story, a wealthier gang of kids come along and tell them to get off their river. Their river? You know? Uh, and this is based on a true story. Um, uh, growing up in Ford's River, and it's all gated now. And Anna Wintour, you know, the devil wears Prada, she has a house there. Uh, it's all gated off and you can't get to it. But when I was a kid, you could ride your bike there. Uh, but whenever we'd get a bucket of crabs or, or get them out of the river, we would sometimes, you know, be, be set upon by these kids from across the river in the wealthier area, and they would take the crabs from us. We'd say, well, you're stealing our crabs. So every time we'd get away from the river with a bucket of crabs, we'd feel like we'd pulled something over on them, you know, or we'd stolen them, you know, not realizing that, you know, that, that they don't have the right. The waters are, are, are accessible to anyone, um, and we have as much right to be on those waters as anybody else. Um, but how do I, how do I write that in a story? And so I know there's a long way to sort of give advice, but that, the problem when you write from that approach is that you do have a tendency sometimes to maybe be preachy, to get on a soapbox. Right. So, so my process is to stay away from those pitfalls that make for that bad writing. Stay away from the soapbox. Avoid making absolute demons and angels out of your character. Uh, stick to the action of the story and just present it and let it happen. Um, and, uh, I gotta say, it's worked wonderfully because nobody wants to read my stories. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, you know, the beautiful swimmers, that story I wrote about the crabs got rejected by the New Yorker. Um, and they completely missed the point. They completely missed They thought it was about a poor kid getting his revenge against rich kids. And it wasn't about that. It was about that sort of psychological messaging that you get when you're poor, uh, that you don't belong. That you don't belong somewhere. Uh, but that was just a product of presenting the evidence as it is. My other advice to be for, for writers, for anyone, is to start submitting their stuff. Um, I know there's a mix. I don't know what you've heard from other writers, but I know there's a sort of a mixed um, uh, bag of, of advice when it comes to submitting. Uh, Kaylee would sometimes say, well, wait until you've discovered your voice. But voice is really a, a thing that evolves over time. Uh, your voice changes as you get older. You get divorced. You, get, you, you have kids. You get married again. Your parents die. Your voice changes as your experiences change. So... I don't know the question about waiting for your voice. I think it is a question sometimes of waiting until you feel you've got the story completely tied down and whittled down to its fighting weight. But I would urge people to start submitting things because here's, here's the thing. 
they don't often tell you, the publishing companies, why they reject you. So just assume that they rejected you for their own personal reasons, that they didn't get it, that they didn't understand, and just keep submitting your, you know, submitting your work. Um, I think it was Sherman Alexi, I think it was in the web setting, and at first I thought it was kind of snarky, but, but it is true. I think he said the only thing that you need to be as a, you need as a writer is post, is money for postage. Um, but it's kind of true that, you know, send, send the work out, put, set the re- set the rejections aside, just keep plugging away because Jules Pfeiffer also told me, you know, they're, they're gonna, you know, their rejection just comes with the territory. You just have to keep giving them opportunities not to be schmucks, right? And to realize that your, that your work is worthy and your voice worthy of being out there. So those two words of advice, I think, is just stick to the, stick to the, uh, the physical action of what happens in your stories. And, and persevere in the face of rejection. Just keep sending things out and assume they just haven't discovered your genius yet. Great. Well, are there writers or books that have inspired you along the way that you would recommend? Yeah. Uh, contemporary or, or more classic? Either, either, either. Either or. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I really love the Russian writers. Uh, I'm very influenced by them. One of the themes in the novel, actually, was, was I, I ran... I was reading it in the, I was reading Tolstoy in the bathroom and I, uh, uh, and it was actually a, a nonfiction introduction that he had written to something, uh, to something, to some other work. And, um, it was, a, it was a little scene that he remembered from his childhood and I, I literally ran out of the bathroom and said, I, I remembered something in my own childhood that very similar, very closely was related to that. And it became a scene in the novel, uh, became a memory, a flashback that the murderer has towards the end of the novel. Um, uh, so I, I'm direct. The novel is directly influenced by those Russian writers, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy. I really love Varlam Shalomov, uh, and I'm working on a, on my next project with something that I'm working on that's very influenced by Shalomov. A lot of people don't know who Shalomov is. He was a, a writer who survived the camps. Uh, most people are sure that's a, you know, I think Solzhenitsyn is the only one who wrote about the camps. But but Shalomov wrote this wonderful collection of stories. Um, or Colimot Tales. And I would urge anyone to go out and write, particularly other writers or writers who are still sort of learning the process. So just talk about a person who's writing about something absolutely horrific, but he does it in such a sort of straightforward, clinical way without any judgment, even, even judgment upon the guards who we had to deal with for 13 years, I believe he was in the camps. Um, and just that sort of clinical way he describes what happened, it's chilling and it's cold and it's sad and it's beautiful all at the same time. Um, uh, Barlam Shalomov, uh, Holy Martel, had to be smuggled out of Russia. Uh, and I think were first appeared in, in French and then eventually translated into English. Um, really beautiful writer. A very, very matter of fact. Here's what this prisoner did. You know, but I mean, he's telling stories about prisoners breaking in and eating a pig raw because they're starving. Um, and, and the joy on his face, having a belly full of raw pig just before the guards execute him. Um, it's just, you can't, you know, you, you, you learn how to write by reading someone like Donald Shalomov. I really like contemporary writers that I really like to read. Uh, Nathan Englander, I think, is great. Um, Anthony Mara is another one. He's just, he wrote a debut novel last year called Vital, um, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena. Uh, it's about, um, uh, Chechnya. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he's a beautiful, he's, he's a wonderful writer. Um, very, very, I like to read writers, you know, Diaz, I, I like to write, I like to read, uh, writers who make me, who send me to the typewriter. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. 
you know, like writers who, who, who you read and you're just like, I, I have to stop whatever this reality show is that I'm watching and go write, you know? Uh, yeah. you, you, you read a page or two and you say, let me close the book right now because I'm completely inspired. And those are the writers that really inspire me. The, the Russian writers, um, I like some of the, some of the romance, you know, romantic era writers and contemporary, really, Nathan Englander, I like Louise Erdrich, I like, um, uh, uh, Anthony Marrow, as David, um, trying to think. Uh, Alice Munro is very good as well. I really like her work, her short stories. William Trevor, the Irish writer, is brilliant. Um, uh, those, those are the writers who really speak to me. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Matthew McGevna, author of Little Beasts. So go grab a copy of Little Beasts today. And Matthew, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.